You're listening to Alpha Health and Wellness Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Haley Schaff, where I'm here to empower you to become the alpha of your health. Welcome back to Alpha Health and Wellness Radio. This week, I had the amazing privilege of interviewing Ivelisse Page, who is the CEO of Believe Big. So if you guys aren't familiar with Believe Big, it's just an amazing organization that we found from my mom's cancer journey. And they are in the process of creating an institution, but as of right now, Believe Big is a non-for-profit organization who is really focused on around empowerment, around cancer. So it really, they take the whole holistic approach. So I think it's really great. The different resources that they have, it's a really awesome organization that was very helpful to our family. The Believe Big Institute or the Believe Big organization really allowed my mom to find a local practitioner to be able to do mistletoe therapy, which as we are learning so much so quickly within her diagnosis, we realized how useful of a therapy that could be. And they have this amazing resource of doctors. They've got so many different things from referrals and education and things that you might want to be looking at. And so because of that, Believe Big is just a very, very near and dear organization to my heart and to my family. And it was really cool to be able to connect with Ivelisse. I actually was on her podcast a few weeks ago, uh, I believe that episode came out. I talked all about detoxification and really how to make it a lifestyle and especially how it can relate to cancer and be a really good anti-cancer preventative. So I thought it would be just full circle to be able to have her on my podcast as she was diagnosed with cancer. And we talk a lot about that journey, what that looked like. We talk a lot about mistletoe and her organization and what it's doing and why it's so amazing. And I just really hope that you guys get a lot out of this podcast and a lot out of her journey. And I know that you'll learn something because I'm always learning something every time I, every time I have these conversations. So without further ado, enjoy this interview. All right. And today for the podcast, I am joined by Ivelisse Page, and she is the co-founder of Believe Big, which is an organization that I am sure most of you have heard me speak about today. And today I really just wanted to bring her on to talk about her journey with cancer, therapies that she used, and obviously talk about Believe Big and what that organization means, what it does, what type of research they're doing, because cancer is just way too prevalent. This is the third, yeah, this is the third cancer episode that I've done. I did one with Dr. Lucas Timms. I did one with Naomi uh, on breast, for Breast Cancer Month, and then now with Ivelisse. So Ivelisse, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I am really, really looking forward to today's conversation. It was so fun that I was able to be on the Believe Big podcast. And now I'm able to flip the tables a little bit and interview you and pick your brain a little bit on your journey and just all the great things that you guys are doing now at Believe Big, which I'm assuming is kind of because of everything that you went through. Yes. You know, I just always feel like no matter what you're going through, you know, your challenges can be turned into opportunities. And so I, you know, really feel like God used my, you know, battle with cancer to now be able to share hope with people who are in the midst of their journey. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I always say that too, pain to purpose and like, it makes you really understand, you know, why you're doing what you're doing. And I feel, I feel a sense of that with, you know, the education that I do, the people that I work with and the type of practice that I have is kind of more, you know, because of that prevention type lifestyle that I hope to, to share with everybody. So would you mind sharing a little bit about your background and then obviously a little bit about your cancer journey as well? Yeah, sure. So I am a busy mom of four. Uh, I've been married to my college sweetheart coming up on 30 years now. And when I was in probably around age 37, I was homeschooling my kids and I just thought that I was just tired from burning the candle at both ends. I also had a job that I worked in the evenings. And so when, uh, you know, I had to take three hour naps a day, you know, my husband just said, something is up. Uh, This is beyond being a busy mom. And so that led me going to a physician's office and getting um, testing done. And, you know, the doctor at that office said, Ivelisse, you need to go to the emergency room right now. And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) And he says, your iron levels are so low that your organs can fail at any moment. And I just sat there like, wait, can I just get an iron pill or something? (laughs) And, uh, you know, just head on my way home. And no, so I uh, immediately called my husband. He was about to get on a flight to California. And thankfully, he was able to reroute home and take me to the emergency room. And that started to lead to figure out what was causing my severe anemia. And, uh, you know, over the course of several tests, uh, the doctors even said, well, it can't be colon cancer because even knowing my history, because you just had a colonoscopy three years prior. And yet the colonoscopy to rule it out ended up discovering the cancer. Wow. And how, what was your lifestyle and everything like when you were diagnosed? Were you kind of in this type of preventative lifestyle or have you changed a lot since that diagnosis? I think both. And my husband was in the health and wellness industry for 20 years. Uh, he ran hospital-based health, health and fitness centers. And, uh, you know, I knew my family history. Uh, my father was diagnosed at the same age that I was with the same type of cancer, but he died two years after his diagnosis. And oh, wow. as- I'm so sorry. Oh, thank you. Along with my grandmother and half of her siblings. So I knew that colon cancer had decimated my dad's side of the family. So I knew what to look out for. Uh, I was vigilant about getting my colonoscopies every five years, which is what they recommended at the time for high risk. And I was eating organic. I was exercising. I was doing in quotes, all the right things. And, you know, now through this process, I've kind of you know, been able to uncover what I believe switched on my cancer. But yes, you know, I was living that healthy lifestyle, but I also realized that there were things that were missing that I had to tweak and, um, and I do still today. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the things that you found useful when you were going through your cancer journey? Yeah. At that time, you know, this is 13 years ago. um, My husband, thankfully, because he was in the health and wellness industry, he knew 
what websites were legitimate, what to look out for. You know, now there's podcasts and so many things available for people to gain knowledge. But I think for me, the biggest thing for me was the fear, honestly. Um, outside, you know, you get a diagnosis of having a less than 8% chance of surviving. And, you know, it can literally grip you with fear. And, you know, for me, especially knowing my father and my grandmother and all of her, all my relatives really just, you know, was so overwhelming and uh, fear tried to grip me. And, and I really had to focus on my mindset and really rely on my faith and really believing that my dad's story was not going to be my story, that my outcome could be different. But truthfully, a big part of me believed that I was on the same path diagnosed at 37, dead at 39. That's so young. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And at the time, my oldest was 13 and my youngest was five. So, you know, having all of the emotions around my kids and am I going to be able to grow old with my, my husband and those thoughts of fear that the enemy tried to, you know, sneak in there, like, you're not going to see your kids uh, graduate or your kids get married and all those big milestones that we look forward to as a parent. And literally I had to get back to what I knew. And for me as a person of faith was, you know, God said that he would be with me and that no matter what I faced, that um, he would give me the strength to endure and the courage to believe that nothing is impossible with him, even with my bleak diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. And so did you go through the conventional care? So I, you know, did not do the traditional chemotherapy and radiation, but I did do surgery. I had uh, my colon resected and I thought I was done at that point. You know, um, they did the colon surgery two weeks after I found out um, about it. And uh, they said only one lymph node out of 28 had been affected. So I thought, okay, great. You know, um, no, I had clear margins, so I'm ready to go. Mm -hmm. And my doctor was really, you know, you really need to um, still do the follow-up care. You still need to, you know, do the due diligence and speak to oncologists. And and so I, I did. I made appointments with three oncologists from three different hospitals. And at my uh, appointment at Hopkins, you know, my oncologist did the scans. And one of the things that I didn't realize is he's like, we need to do a CT scan on you, not a PET scan. And I'm like, well, why? Everyone else did a PET scan. And he said, well, your cancer is mucosinous and it will hide in a PET scan. And I was like, oh, wow. So sure enough, I went in, did my CAT scan and I thought I was on my way clear. And in the middle of the appointment with him, he just got the results back and he's like, Ivelisse, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but we see three lesions on your liver. And that's where the, you know, wind got knocked out of my sails. And, you know, my husband wasn't even at that appointment because I thought we were done. He had been just, you know, taking over so much while I was recovering from my surgery that I was like, don't, don't worry about it. You go to work and I will, you know, go to this appointment and we're done. And Mm -hmm. that started a whole new uh, journey of trying to figure out what to do next. So then I had liver surgery. And 
for me, I think the big aha moment was asking the right questions. And one of the questions I asked him was, okay, for me, a young 37-year-old, you know, in great shape outside of the cancer, uh, one lymph node at 28, I mean, what are my chances of survival with chemotherapy? And this was the conversation right before the scan came through to show us stage four. And he said to me, well, Ivelisse, it looks like, you know, when I put everything into the system, you know, it, you have a 67% chance of survival. And I'm like, okay, that's not bad. And then, you know, the, my next question was, well, what if I didn't do chemotherapy? What are my chances of survival? And this is what just floored me. He said, your chances of survival are 57%. And I was like, wait, you mean if I did nothing, the, the chemotherapy would only help me 10%? And he was like, yeah, but that's 10%. <laughs> and I remember looking at him and going, okay, tell me this. you know." And we had a, a great conversation. And I said, if you went through eight years of medical school, you, you know, working so many hours trying to pass your boards. And if you knew that you were going to get a 10% on your final exam, would you have gone through that eight years of training and all the exhaustion from that for 10% on your, on your boards? And he kind of smiled at me Hmm. and, uh, and I said it, and that's just kind of was the big aha moment for me that, okay, if I have six months to live, because um, the scans came back and said I was stage four, and then it came to 8% chance of survival, I was like, I'm going to live it out with my kids and my family. I am not going to be, and that was just my personal choice. I respect everyone's choices to do what they feel is best. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, you know, I just said, I'm going to live it out. I'm not going to be sick in bed and, and weak and, and not enjoy these last few months with my family. Absolutely. And so what are there, is that kind of when you started looking into mistletoe and more of those alternative therapies? Yeah. So, you know, my husband had sleepless nights. I I was at peace, you know, with, with where I was, you know, and, um, you know, my husband looked into every single thing and, and I, and I can understand patients feeling of being overwhelmed because everyone's sending you things and saying, oh, you got to try this herb and, and this mm-hmm. treatment. And, and you're just like, oh my goodness, there's so much to learn. But, you know, for me, two people from two different walks of life after this appointment within the same week told me that I had to go speak to this integrated practitioner. And I took that as a sign from God, like, okay, I need to find, I need to listen to this. And, and it was in that appointment that my husband and I heard about mistletoe. I had not heard about it before then. I just thought mistletoe therapy is what you see at Christmas time. Right. <laughs> the, the wonderful decoration. And, you know, when we sat in his office, that's when he was like, you know, I'm looking at everything you've done, the protocol your husband has kind of put together with supplements and, but you have cancer and you need something that's going to attack those cancer cells at the microscopic level even. And, that's where mistletoe comes in. And I was fascinated because he began to show us all the clinical studies that had been done in Europe. And he told us about how it helps with tumor-related pain. It causes cancer cell death. It helps to, um, you know, for people who are going through chemotherapy and radiation, 
they can use it alongside of it and it helps mm-hmm. to offset those negative side effects like vomiting and nausea, lack of sleep, even loss of hair. So it's a, such an incredible uh, therapy. And my question to him was, okay, you know, this sounds amazing. So what's the downside? <laughs> what's what's the two-page handout on the potential side, you know, effects from this treatment as with everything else? And that's where he was like, well, honestly, outside of a fever and, you know, some rare um, sensitivities for people, there really isn't any. And for me, I felt like I had everything to gain and nothing to lose. And that day in his uh, office, I had my first injection of mistletoe. Uh, how did you feel after your first injection? You know, I there wasn't anything like, ooh, <laughs> right. uh, any sensations or anything like that. I um, I just felt like, what an amazing plant. You know, I was hopeful, um, but I, I probably, you know, for me, probably about a month or two in is, is when um, I really realized the power of it um, for my particular journey because two weeks after that appointment, I went in for my liver surgery. So I had been on the mistletoe for two weeks and went in for my surgery And then 10 weeks later, I went back to my oncologist for my follow-up after surgery. And it's there at his office that my husband and I asked him, so what are my chances that it's back? And he's like, you really want to know? And I'm like, yeah, we really want to know. And he said, the chances of it being back is 75% at this first appointment. And I just was like, oh. And my husband looked over at me and he said, you're going to be that 25%. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful to have had him next to me because he has always had that positive mindset. And not that we're Pollyanna positive, but it's just that, that belief that you can be well, your mind has such a powerful uh, ability to heal and can keep your body in that restful state so that it can heal. But that's when the real power of the mistletoe for me really showed up because at that appointment, there was no evidence of disease. And we all high five, celebrated. And then three months later, I came back and no evidence of disease. Three that's months amazing. after. Isn't that incredible? And three months later and five years and and literally, it's it, it was just never has returned since my liver surgery in 2000. Um, any? Did you have any, how much of your bowel did you have resected? Uh, I had 15 inches of my colon removed. Wow. And a third of my liver. Wow. But the liver can definitely regenerate. Did you, did you have any complications post-surgery? Thankfully, no, it was extremely painful. (laughs) I, uh, for me, the colon surgery, um, was not as difficult to recover from. It was laparoscopic. So that made it easier to recover. I think probably about the two, three week mark, I was walking, you know, doing pretty much my everyday without heavy lifting, but the liver surgery just knocked me out of my seat. It was literally three months before I could drive. Um, It was so painful. And I think for me, the hardest part was that emotional 
ties to my family. Like, you know, my little, my daughter at the time was five and she always wanted me, she always sat on my lap to for read stories. And I couldn't do that because even just a slight touch on my abdomen just was so painful. Mm-hmm. Um, but thankfully I didn't have any complications outside of the the pain and the recovery from that. That's really good. And so do you still continue with mistletoe to this day? Yes. And, and I think that's one of the, the greatest things about mistletoe is that not only does it help you, you know, during your cancer journey, but it has so many therapeutic and uh, attributes within it that helps to protect your body from getting a recurrence. And I really think it's one of the large pieces of the puzzle that has helped me to stay NED all these years. And it's, and I'm always cautious to tell people that are listening that it's not just the mistletoe because people will say, oh, I just need to get mistletoe and that's it, you know? And Mm -hmm. as you know, as a physician, you know, there are so many factors that play a role in a person's healing and, you know, the emotional, the spiritual, the mental and the physical side. And, but that was a huge piece on my physical side of staying well in, in my healing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how far after your diagnosis did you create Believe Big? Yeah. So, you know, it was at one of those appointments where my husband and I were waiting at, in the waiting room, waiting for my appointment. And we looked around and it's beautifully decorated. Um, the staff is so kind and amazing. But as we looked around at the people waiting, you just see this f- sense of fear on their faces. You know, it's, you see the uh, anxiety and the angst in their loved ones. And it was just a, a spirit of heaviness in, in the room. And I remember leaning over to my husband and I just said, I believe we're here for a reason and we need to do something to encourage these people that are around us. You know, I have your support. We have a strong faith, but not many of them have that. And Mm -hmm. we just need to do something to encourage them. And he's like, you're right. You know, and what, what do we do? (laughs) And that week, literally I was sitting um, at my kitchen table and we're very, I love crafts. And um, I had always taken my kids to the paint your own pottery places. And I had had uh, one of my special mugs that had all their handprints on it. And I pulled it out every morning and I didn't even realize it because it always made me smile. It always made me happy. And I remember drinking from it. And as I looked at it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is it. I said, we are going to paint believe mugs for these patients and we are going to bring them into my appointments. And fill them with, I will have no fear prayer that uh, my husband compiled for me. And I know that that's going to encourage them. And so that's kind of how Believe Big got birthed. I thought it was just me and my friends handing Believe mugs out to cancer centers, uh, to patients. And, um, but it really just started, um, it got birthed through Believe mugs. That's amazing. (laughs) And you still do the Believe mugs to this day. Yes, I, I think it's one of my favorite parts of, of what we do. And because, you know, we get notes and cards from people because we have found that people feel alone. And when they get one of these mugs that someone took the time to paint for them, it just encourages them to believe that, yeah, they can get well. Someone it did this for me. I do have community support. 
And we have pottery stores all over the country that have partnered with us. And anyone can walk in, paint, pay $15, they paint a mug, and then the store is coordinated with local cancer centers and they deliver them locally. So where you paint is who you're helping. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. So the Believe Big really started with the mugs and just kind of doing something for your local cancer patients. And how did you turn it into really and scale it to what it is today? Because I mean, now you guys are creating a whole institute. You're doing. You're in charge of so much research. How did it get to that point? Yeah. So um, you know, at my two year mark. I had been telling my doctor about the mistletoe, and he, my oncologist, was one of the lead researchers at Johns Hopkins. And I kept telling him that we need to make this available for everyone. I shouldn't be the only one that benefits from this. And I remember he would look at me. He's like, well, it's not just that easy. And every uh, every appointment after a clean scan, he would say, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic. And it wasn't until my two-year mark that he's like, this is monumental. Do you realize that you're part of the 8% that not only is alive today, but is completely cancer-free, NED? And I was like, I know. And I know that mistletoe has such a huge part of it. We need to make this available. And that at that two-year mark is where he became open to say, okay, let's look into this. And we started to... Uh, have meetings with my integrative doctor, who is one of the leading experts in mistletoe, um, my oncologist, and my husband and myself. And we started to develop the first uh, clinical trial uh, for mistletoe therapy in the United States. And then Believe Big started to be the funding source for the trial. Uh, For those people who aren't familiar with clinical trials, typically pharmaceutical companies fund them. So it's really difficult for natural therapies to get the research that is needed to become standard of care Mm. because they don't have the funding source behind it. And so we raised the funds for the first uh, mistletoe clinical trial um, in the United States. That's amazing. That's amazing. And is that all concluded? Can you share any of the results with us? Yeah. Well, I'm really excited because um, we... Uh, I just got news probably about two weeks ago that Johns Hopkins submitted the report to the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And so now is when it's going to be peer reviewed and all of the, you know, the um, statistical information and the results of it is going to be shared, but it will be published in about three months. So if anyone would like to continue to follow, you know, that story of, of research, you know, they can follow us at Believe Big on Instagram, Facebook, or, you know, sign up for our monthly newsletters at info at believebig.org. And they'll be continually updated on, on what's happening there. Um, but I can tell you that uh, they did find that it was a safe and effective dose and that they're sharing that it did improve the quality of life for patients. Awesome. Awesome. How long was that trial? Wow. So it was a long process and COVID kind of put it up pause um, yeah. for almost a year. They weren't able to do that. So um, it was several years that it had it, it was done by the time we were developing it, working with German researchers and raising the funds and uh, finishing, completing it. 
And now we're going to begin discussions on phase two, and we're currently raising the funds for phase two. Awesome. Awesome. That's so exciting. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> or is any of the research in um, Dr. Nasha Winter's new book? Because I know that's on my list to read. Yeah. So the mistletoe book is a phenomenal book and it was written by seven of the experts in mistletoe therapy, including my doctor, Dr. Hinderberger. Uh, it doesn't have the research that was done at Hopkins, but okay. it it is a great resource for individuals um, who want to share it with their doctor because it does share a lot of clinical data. Uh, and it also has great information for patients. And what I like about the book is that they kind of guide you at the beginning. If you're a layman like myself and just want to know the basics about mistletoe, you can read those chapters. And if you're more of the clinician side or the research side or a medical uh, physician, they have those chapters for you to get, you know, dive deep into um, the chemical makeup and how it's administered and all those aspects. Very cool. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So what is the Believe Big Institute going to look like and when can we expect that to be there? Yes. I wish it was already here yesterday. I know. <laughs> COVID probably made that a little bit more. Yes. Uh, that that was challenging. You know, the yeah. Believe Big board and myself are leading this project and we had to put a pause on the land uh, just right before COVID, everything was shutting down. And there's so many aspects of community meetings and working with the local, um, you know, government and county officials to create something like this. So we had to put it on pause, but we just recently reopened the search and we are looking, you know, in Colorado and in Arizona for land opportunities that are available today. And we are, you know, during the time of COVID, what was great is that we were able to establish, um, you know, the medical side of uh, the practitioner side and really establishing great relationships with physicians and working on different aspects as far as the mental side, the emotional side of, of, of the facility. You know, we know that patients are going through this overwhelming process and our goal is to help them to heal not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. So all those components will be in the Believe Big Institute of Health and we want it to be at a place of respite. So it's going to be in a place where people can rest, uh, they can be restored, uh, and and be able to heal. I love and, that. That's exactly, mm -hmm. it's the most nuanced, but in my <laughs> opinion, it should be something that all cancer clinics should have been doing a long time ago because cancer is not just you have this, now you have cancer. It's, it's you know, toxicity related, nutritionally related, mentally related. So the fact that you're taking all of those and putting them into one place it's going to be absolutely amazing. And when I found out that you guys were doing that, I just, I'm, I just can't wait to see the finished product. Oh, well, you'll be one of the first invited to check it out. <laughs> oh, I will be there. I will definitely be there. And is it true that you guys are going to be growing? I remember reading this somewhere. Um, you're going to be growing a lot of the food and things that are served at yes. the clinic. Yes. And you know, you think about it, hospitals and 
healing centers are supposed to be providing healing, right? And yet our food that we serve patients are not healing. <laughs> and so at our conventional institutions. And so, yes, anyone can go onto our webpage, uh, bbinstituteofhealth.org, and there's a video and, and additional information as to what our hopes and plans are for the Institute. But yes, one of the large factors is regenerative farming. And even, you know, at the onset is working with local farmers, uh, organic farmers that can provide the food and the ingredients for our patients' meals. I think that's so, so important. I mean, there's what we, what's at the end of our fork is either feeding or fighting disease and it's our choice. And so I think it's so contradictory when, you see these patients go to an oncology center and they're eating jello and breads. And I remember I looked at one of the cookbooks that my mom was given an oncology treatment. And I mean, the recipes were just all high sugar. It was using canola oil. I just, I just, I'm really, I laughed, but at the same time, I was really sad because is this really what we're giving to people who are fighting this disease or any disease, let alone cancer, which has a huge inflammatory and sugar component. Yes, it's really amazing too. But you know, I I really believe that oncologists are doing the best they can in there. Agree. They only know what they know. And I was just shocked to learn that only recently, within the last couple of years, did medical schools even offer a nutrition course to yes. physicians. <laughs> I mean, I remember talking to my oncologist and saying, you know, he, I was like, why are you recommending, you know, these foods and why are they serving candy bars and potato chips and soda in the waiting room? And he just says, you know, Ivelisse, you know, we are just so concerned that they're going to lose the weight and not be able to handle treatment that we tell them to eat whatever they want, whatever they can. And I said, well, tell me this, if your daughter was sick with the flu, would you be going to McDonald's and giving her soda and burgers and fries? Or would you be feeding her orange juice and chicken noodle soup and, you know, those items? And, and he just kind of looked at me and smiled. And, and I just think that they don't know what they don't know. And that's why I'm mm-hmm. so grateful for physicians like yourself and ones that we work with that really help to guide patients on, you know, what does good nutrition mean? How can I keep the weight on, you know, in order to uh, handle treatment best? What -hmm. are some of the things that I should do prior and post treatments if I am doing conventional treatment? So, you know, we uh, just recently did a podcast with Jess Kelly from Remission Nutrition, and she shares so many great words of wisdom in regards to the nutrition piece during treatments. And it was, it's amazing. Okay. I will definitely make sure I link to the Believe Big podcast in the show notes so that people can listen to that. Cause you're having so many cancer experts on, and I think that that's so important for people to get, get that, that information. Um, because like it's, it seems sometimes very obviously non-conventional because it's not what people are going to hear when they walk into their standard oncology appointment, but it's, I think it's seriously changing lives. How, you can, if you choose to go the conventional route, you can still do things to support yourself and, you know, help yourself heal obviously from the chemo, but also from the cancer instead of just eating to make sure you don't lose weight because that's, 
I, I don't understand why that's their biggest concern. There's so many other concerns. Yes. <laughs> you know, obviously we don't want, we don't want people to get incredibly thin, but at the same time, at what cost of giving inflammation further in the body? I don't know. That is probably something I really just don't understand. Thankfully, you know, my mom didn't follow any of the recipes in that book. <laughs> I think she tolerated chemo quite well. Um, unfortunately in her case, it didn't work super great. Um, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't work for other people. And that doesn't mean that it, there's a way that you can, you can do both if you choose. And I think that that's so crazy that in your case with your specific, you know, prognosis and everything that there was really only a 10% like increase that you might have if you went through the chemo. And I know when my mom did the colon cancer chemo, cause she had cancer twice, the colon mm -hmm. cancer one, although she didn't lose her hair, she had really interesting neurological symptoms. Like if we, it was, I remember it was spring and we were at a baseball game. And if she breathed in the cold air, it just made her freezing throughout her entire body. So it just completely shot her nerves. And obviously now thinking back, I'm like, what is that doing? Mm. Wow. In that case, that chemotherapy did seem to help her. But then when we get to, you know, it, it just, it's so interesting when you just think of how these things are working. But um, so kind of to wrap things up, if you were to, if you obviously cancer is incredibly prevalent, one in three people in the next, probably what I think they're projecting one in three people will have a cancer diagnosis. Is that the right stat? Yeah. One in three men, one in 2.4 women will hear they have cancer in their lifetime. And the newest reports are showing now that the cancer rates are expected to double by 2030. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we wonder why, I mean, we just look at the world that we live. And so, so with knowing those statistics, not to make people freak out, but if people were to want, if they wanted to live a preventative lifestyle or if heaven forbid they knew somebody who was diagnosed with cancer, what would you say your biggest tips would be if you were to give three tips, kind of like a mind, body, and spirit kind of tips, like a, mm, what, what yes. would those be for either cancer prevention or dealing with that cancer diagnosis? Cause I kind of almost lump them together as I, I, I'm not treating active cancer in my body, but the lifestyle that I live, it's very, I try to be as anti-cancer as I possibly can. Yes. Yeah. I think, you know, prevention is key. Like the best way to stop cancer is to prevent it from happening. <laughs> and I have found, I wish I would have known way back when, um, to speak to physicians like yourself or the ones that are on our website that even if you don't have cancer, for them to do a workup on, you know, your, do a blood workout workup on, you know, where are your, those yellow flags? Um, what are your epigenetics look like? Like, what are some things that are kind of concerning that if we address them now, that switch of cancer would never turn on? And I think that that's one of the things that I didn't realize. I was going to my doctors and getting the traditional blood work. But even when I was sick, I would have my blood work at Hopkins and my oncologist would look, yep, you're in the normal range. Everything's good. See you in three months, right? Mm -hmm. I would send the same blood work to my integrative practitioner and he was like, hmm, yeah, this is on the very low side of normal and this is going to affect your lymphocytes and you know, you need, we need to up this, we need to decrease this. And he just knew how that puzzle fit together. And I think that we have those physicians now that even do telemedicine, if you don't have one 
in your area that can really look at you as an individual and say, let's see how you're doing and let's uh, make those yellow flags green again. Mm-hmm. And so I think that would be my one tip for prevention is to speak to an integrative practitioner that can take a deep dive into your health to see where your weaknesses are and to strengthen them before anything happens. Um, For a patient, uh, I would definitely say is one of the best things that they could do is to be their own advocate, to realize that they are the CEO of their body and they know their body best. And to, yes, you know, we need to listen to the wisdom of our doctors, but we need to listen to our bodies enough to know what is best for us. And I'm so glad I did that because, you know, you just have that gut feeling to know what is going to be your path and to be okay with that. So I would say that is my advice for those who are starting this journey. Be your own advocate, you know, um, do what you feel is best for you and, um, and follow through with that because this is your journey, no one else's. And as far as the spiritual side I know for a fact that, you know, for those individuals who are dealing with fear and anxiety, you know, one of the best things that I did was, you know, one of the gifts that my father's passing gave me was my faith. It was his cancer journey that brought my whole family to a knowledge of who God was. And, you know, that was at the age of 13. So when I was diagnosed at 37, I had this Uh, support system of a community, of my church community, but I also knew that God was with me. And in those moments that I had fear, I would read his word. I I would read that I will have no fear prayer because sometimes even after being a believer for so long, I sometimes couldn't pray. I I couldn't find the words (laughs) to pray. And that prayer just kind of guided me through this imagery of protection of comfort, of strength and courage. And at the end of it, I would be filled with peace. And I think that allowed my body to heal fully. I think that's such an important part of healing is that peace that I think a lot of people don't get Yes, when they're going through that journey. Mm -hmm. Well, this was amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on my podcast and share about your journey and share just about all the amazing things that you guys are doing at Believe Big. Believe Big was just such, I remember when I was looking for anything I possibly could to help my mom, Believe Big was probably the first thing that I I think I found. And I just was blown away at the educational resources, the database that you guys have on there so that you can find a practitioner locally to do mistletoe. That's how we got my mom connected with somebody in Albany, but then we found a functional medicine practitioner who would would do the IVs for her. And just it, it just connected us to things that we didn't even think were possible. And mm. that's all something that was there as a free resource, which is amazing. And that's why my family just, we, we still believe in giving back to you and your foundation. And if you're listening to this podcast and you'd like to donate to Believe Big, you can donate right on their website. But I also have shirts that any proceeds from the shirts, I donate right to Believe Big just because I I just love what you guys are doing so much. And although, you know, my mom's not here, you know, today to also talk about how much she believed and loved the organization, it's still something that, you know, I just, I know was, um, we were meant to find it on her journey and I was meant to be connected with you. And, you know, I just can't wait to see all the 
amazing things that you're going to continue to provide for these patients. Thank you, Haley. We are so grateful for you as well and the resource that you are to so many of, of the people that come to see us. And, um, you know, and I am grateful for our partnership and our teamwork. Me too. Well, likewise. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And I can't wait to hear what people think about today's episode. Thank you. Woo! <laughs>